It seems that she has left me for such reasons unexplained. I need to find the truth, but see what will I do? Then it doesn't seem to matter, and it doesn't seem it's the realest part. No fucking still, I cry alone at night. Don't you judge even my composure, 'cause I'm bothered every day, and she didn't. And we're always、um, asking for donations to help us out because it's a grassroots project, and we run on donations and support from people like you. So thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for considering that. So we're really excited about this show today. We have a special guest on,、um, a childhood friend of ours. His name is Stephen Frenda, who is studying memory research right now in LA. Stephen Frenda got his degree in psychology from the New School University in New York, and he's currently working on a PhD in psychology and social behavior at the University of California, Irvine. Some of his research involves the way that suggestive influences can lead to completely false memories, and how those errors can play out in the legal system with devastating consequences. So we'll get into his interview later on in the broadcast. We're just going to go over a couple headlines that have been going on recently、um, that have been kind of underreported in the holiday season. Uh, and the flurry of activity of just Christmas shopping and stuff. A、uh, little undermentioned story is just how the Pentagon got a nice little Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> They just passed the highest military budget ever.、Um, on December twenty second, both houses of the U.S. Congress unanimously passed a bill authorizing seven hundred twenty five billion dollars for next year's defense budget. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Thanks, Pentagon. Um, and if you take that figure. Uh, it means that every American will spend two thousand three hundred fifty-four dollars just for the wars next year. Well, that's that's pretty. That's Isn't that great? Because I can afford that. I mean, so is it? You multiply that by the population. Yeah, I guess, guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other really shocking thing that just that just came out. Remember the movie Aaron Brockovich? Aaron Brockovich was a was a movie、um, from about ten years ago、uh, with Julia Roberts, and it was about a Local town's water supply being contaminated with a toxic chemical called hexavalent chromium that was coming from the water runoff from a, a factory. 
the Environmental Working Group just released a report um, earlier in the week indicating that millions of Americans are actually now regularly drinking this chemical. They did a study and they found out that 31 out of 35 cities that they did this analysis in contains this chemical in their drinking water. Does the Berkey get rid of hexaf- hexaflame fluorine? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> or whatever it's called. I, I hope so. I mean... I want to, I, I have a Berkey and I'm, I want to get, if I mean, how do we, is there any like water filters that specifically get? We, we should look into that and get back to the <laughs> audience because that is really terrifying. The highest concentrations of this chemical were found in Oklahoma, Honolulu, and Riverside. It's very interesting. One other thing that, uh, it's a story that I just wrote for Nthword magazine. Um, it's a really cool online magazine. Everyone should check it out, but it's about Hungary. Um, Hungary is incurring a very scary political climate right now. A very right-wing conservative party just took over two-thirds of Hungary's parliament, and they have completely changed the constitution and cracked down very hard on independent journalism, all aspects of media, and the independent arts. The arts is is one of the most scary things to me about that, because that's almost like kind of the last bastion of, of freedom if everything else is squelched, you know? And it makes sense. I mean, would-be dictators crack down on on forms that breed dissent and breed sort of that counterculture yeah and it's just really really scary um they just are they're they're trying to impeach right now the an internationally acclaimed director for the budapest theater because he wanted to throw a romanian holiday concert for the romanian pop- population in hungary and they're saying that he's a traitor they're saying that he's anti-hungarian so it's so it's like in a kind of a nationalistic direction that the country is taking like are they Absolutely, yeah, is absolutely. It, is it is it based in any sort of like Aryan white supremacy or? Is yeah, it not? absolutely. They they just published a list of Jews, Bolsheviks, and homosexuals in the country, and they've also what? required that their new party manifesto is publicly mounted in every public sphere in the entire country. Wow, and it's wait. extremely scary. The rhetoric in the party manifesto like mirrors Nazi rhetoric. That's really strange that that a country. I mean, is it's technically. Hungary is part of Europe, right? It's yeah, they Europe. joined the EU um, in 2004. That's really crazy that that's not being more talked about. I know. And the EU is, um, has very strict guidelines about adhering to certain, you know, certain tenets of just like respect. You know, you cannot discriminate. You cannot do these things. And, and it's really, really strange that not more is being talked about the situation. It's terrifying, actually. This whole time we've been doing Media Roots Radio, we've we've been very interested in the subject of WikiLeaks, um, you know, and now it's kind of turned into kind of a multi-pronged story where now Bradley Manning is in jail for what he supposedly leaked. Julian Assange is being called out by all these public figures to be assassinated. Within the 9-11 truth movement, I've noticed, think that WikiLeaks is the CIA front. There's so many different, you know, points of view that, that kind of go along with the subject. One of the the most important things about it right now, we think, is the conditions that that Bradley Manning is being subjected to um, in prison and the fact that charges have not been brought to him and that he's basically been sitting in jail so far, I think, for over five months. What What is the difference? What are they saying is the difference between Daniel Ellsberg leaking the Pentagon Papers and Bradley Manning? I mean, Daniel Ellsberg was never put in jail. I just, what is what are they saying is the need for this? I think it's because... What I've noticed from from how people have tried to portray it is that they they try to make it seem like Daniel Ellsberg was a guy who whose whose mission was to undermine the official narrative on the Vietnam War at the time, mm-hmm. and he 
you know, he saw some injustices being committed and then he felt he needed to uncover those and leak them. But people are trying to say that Bradley Manning indiscriminately leaked thousands and thousands of documents and videos to WikiLeaks and, and to, you know, whoever, um, you know, irresponsibly and just yeah. as this dumb kid who just wanted to cause trouble and he didn't have anything specific in mind and he just wanted to unload all this information. So they're just painting him as just like this irresponsible child, this soldier. In just- some ways, yeah. I mean, if the guy was 40 years old, it would the media story on him would be, I think, completely different. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with his age. Uh, it has a lot to do with his position in the military. Which yeah, we've is, seen how hard they've tried to, to smear him already. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he's a private, they're simultaneously saying, well, he's a private, you know, this, this lowly military officer, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't know what he's doing. He just had this wrong, made this wrongheaded decision. But the fact that he's a private in and of itself is actually really, I think it should be looked at more because how could someone, if he did leak all this important information, how did he get access to it? So yeah, so low in rank in the military. If that's true, if those speculations are true, that he did leak all this information, all these diplomatic cables, then what does that say about the way we protect our, you know, secure classified information? It really shows that we have some big holes there. I know, right? It's it's just (laughs) once again, it's like, if you do believe the official story that he did leak these and how the hell did he access the documents? That is really questionable. So Bradley Manning, he's a 22-year-old U.S. Army private. Glenn Greenwald wrote a really good article um, discussing in depth the inhumane conditions of his detention. And he wrote this article on December 15th for Salon.com. And we just wanted to talk a little bit about how inhumane his treatment is and where he's staying and um, what the conditions are and why this is just completely wrong. (laughs) If you actually read those chat logs... You know, that it still haven't been fully published. Uh, Kevin Paulson, um, the so-called hacker, wired journalist who wrote, who basically broke this story. Um, well, all the information from it came from Adrian Lamo, um, a known liar, basically. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, basically this whole time he's been very dishonest in, in what he said. But I don't want to sidetrack on him. I don't want to give him any more attention mm-hmm. than he's already gotten. He's been in solitary confinement for over seven months. He was just transferred and has been in another facility for the five months. For 23 out of 24 hours every day, for seven months straight and counting, he sits completely alone in a cell, solitary confinement, no contact with the outside world whatsoever, no contact with his family, no contact with information. It's really, truly torture if you think about you know think about someone sitting inside a cell only allowed to walk around and get exercise for one hour of the day he's not allowed to sleep during the day he's on constant suicide watch he cannot interact with the guards but he has to speak to them on cue i mean all of these things are just i can't even imagine it's really really disturbing and what you told me last night about how he requested some books and one of the books he requested was The Art of War. It really like humanized him for me and just made me realize that he's a human being and he needs he needs to be held on trial. We need to see the evidence against him. We can't just trust that the government I mean, even if he did leak all these cables, we need to we need to see proof of this. We can't just hold this person indefinitely in a solitary cell. This is insane. It's the same. I mean, it's just the same story over and over again. We, we do this to people who we call terrorists and without bringing any Enemy charges combatants. to them. When the government can't bring any evidence to somebody, they just smear them in the press. And it's, and it's happened over and over again to countless people. And he's just throw another one out of the, the fire. Yeah, it seems like it seems like the media and the government have just already 
you know, made him guilty in a court of public opinion. And now it's just like it's already been decided. I mean, whatever happened to you're innocent until proven guilty. I mean, it's totally like a role exactly. reversal. And and the, and the story almost became believable by a lot of people because it it's originated in Wired magazine, the supposed like young person technology magazine, like cutting edge, mm-hmm. you know, stuff. They have like, you know, silly political commentary. And it all came from this hacker guy who mm-hmm. said that, you know, Manning had gone too far, so he had to turn him in to the authorities. Um, and they portrayed this guy as someone who, who was actually the person who turned him in was doing some kind of service to our country. It's really insidious to me because I feel like he was probably an informant all along or, or way before he, he said he was. I mean, nothing, nothing about it makes sense. If you're looking at the two, two options, either he leaked them or he didn't, okay? If he leaked them, then it doesn't matter. We should still put him on trial in, in America and we should see the evidence. If he didn't leak them, then what the hell is going on? I mean, we have no idea if he leaked them or not. We're just we're just getting our evidence from Wired magazine and like the government yeah. propaganda machine. This is this is outrageous. I mean, I want to I want proof that he even leaked these documents. There's absolutely no proof at all. Yeah, none that we've seen. I mean, if there is proof, we we just haven't been shown it. And or, and nothing or, that has been leaked has compromised national security. Yeah, they continuously keep saying Julian Assange has blood on his hands. They've you know they've said that he's responsible for the deaths of all these Afghanis and Iraqis multiple times, but you know they've contradicted themselves later on. Um, a NATO uh, head came out and said that. He has caused no harm in Afghanistan, that nobody's died as a result. No informants or anybody that was involved in helping the U.S. forces over there was compromised. You know what causes leak. more harm? Indiscriminately just murdering people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that causes much more harm, just indiscriminately murdering reporters and like getting away with it. Yeah. I, I, it's outrageous. It's always the lie by omission. You yeah. know, it's always just like, you know, he's he, he's putting people's lives in danger. <laughs> The the whole thing about, you know, that WikiLeaks are hackers, um, a lot of people try to discount what WikiLeaks has actually done by saying that, you know, they're just trying to, you know, mess up the system and, and throw a wrench in everything because they're just coming from that hacker background where, you know, just kids wanting to like mess with the mm-hmm. system. But I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're confusing. It's another case of confusing the messenger with the message. It's like Julian Assange to some people comes off as this kind of smug, kind of like weird um, mastermind kind of guy. And I think, you know, maybe I've heard people say that, you know, they think that they should change the head of WikiLeaks to someone else or whatever. I mean, why are we even talking about who he is as a person? Exactly. It it doesn't affect the content in which is being leaked. Absolutely not. If you notice the U.S. government and the press really hasn't actually done a very good job of disputing any of the content in the leaks. No. They haven't gone... Well, actually, these are are non-factual. I mean, if anything, they're just completely... They've been floating along without having to do any of their own reporting for months on the WikiLeaks cables. <laughs> yeah, he's actually helping them <laughs> yeah. doing their job really easy. Uh, a lot of people in the truth movement are saying that WikiLeaks is a CIA front. I have seen absolutely no evidence of this whatsoever. I th- once again, I think it's just confusing the messenger with the message. Uh, these are just internal documents. These are internal cables with military officials. Yeah, and just because some of them prop up some of the... War on terror. Yes, that that prop up some of these neocon agendas like wanting to invade Iran and, and, you know, Pakistan funding Al-Qaeda. I mean, 
that's internal military intelligence doesn't necessarily um, amount to reality. It's yeah. it's their perception on things from within their own bubble. Yeah, Assange isn't going through that and like making, you know, construing some sort of narrative. He's just releasing internal documents. That's all he's doing. So I think people are a little bit confused on on Assange's role in this whole thing. Yeah, and he may not be on the same page as you and I politically or, mm-hmm. or some other, you know, people that I know. But I mean, you know, I mean, I think he kind of goes along with the thing that that Iran is is helping fund the the Iraqi insurgency and and I think he buys into some of those cables that talk about that mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily believe that that's actually happening I just think that that's what our military believes and I also don't think that these figures that we respect and that are doing good things like this like these whistleblowers need to adhere to everything that we politically adhere to and and there's another guy the reason I even mentioned Julian Assange in the first place is because I've actually seen when he did a when he was supposed to do a keynote speech at this hacker conference after the WikiLeaks collateral murder video came out, um, he was actually forced with a di- faced with a dilemma. If he got there, he would be detained by Homeland Security agents. They were there waiting for him at the hacker conference. Mm. So he had another guy do his keynote address for him. Um, another guy in WikiLeaks, uh, an American hacker. This guy's name was Jake Applebaum. And if you actually go on YouTube and look at his keynote speech and and watch the whole thing. It's actually extremely eloquent. And this, in my opinion, beautifully laid out kind of moral philosophy of why WikiLeaks is good, Mm -hmm. what they're doing, what kind of why they're going this far, what their goals are. Um, Julian Assange, sometimes he doesn't, you know, they, the press distracts him into the minutia. They don't, they don't let him kind of go into the whole moral philosophy behind it. But I find that aspect of it, there's a Very really good TED talk where Julian Assange is just talking about why the world needs WikiLeaks. It's a good talk. Just kind of him yeah, like, I think un- I've seen a little bit of that. Kind yeah. of like unedited, just like him lecturing about it. Um, in this Greenwald article, going back to Bradley Manning, there's a really interesting study that was done with um, returning Vietnam vets who talked about solitary confinement and how it was just um, agonizing. They said it was comparable to the most extreme cases of physical torture that they incurred. So, I mean, solitary confinement is torture. And even John McCain writes of his experience in, in solitary confinement when he was in Vietnam as a, as a war prisoner. He says that it crushed his spirit and that it was completely agonizing. And once again, it was just, it was like physical torture. So Having no human contact for days on end um, makes you go through emotional withdrawal. It's like you're, you, it, you, you almost have a biological urge to be around other humans. And Absolutely. When, you, when you're cut off We're from that We're social creatures. Yeah. Greenwald makes it makes a great point, of course, brings it all together. It's just, it's just interesting that, you know, the Obama administration, here we are vowing to end torture, all these horrendous war crimes that we did during the Bush administration, and yet here we are torturing our own citizens for being whistleblowers. It's just... Yeah. And Obama was all proud, you know, going to the media and saying, we're now going to adhere to the military interrogation manual, you know, like, you know, like back when that's what we were adhering to, you know, Geneva conventions, but it's almost like they're pushing it. If they are technically adhering to it, which I don't really believe they're pushing it to the hilt. They're like, well, what what, what, can we go to the very, very line? Mm -hmm. Like what's the line that we can't cross and let's go right up to it. It's like, just, I just want everyone (laughs) to imagine this. What if Bush did this to someone who whistle, like who was a whistleblower and released these documents during like the height of 
the anti-war movement during the Bush administration. Can you imagine the outcry? Yeah, we'd see his sign. We'd see his face on um, signs all over the place, protesting during, and along with the anti-war protests. I'm glad that more international attention is being paid to the Bradley Manning story because I see it seems like he was forgotten about a little bit with the the Assange just totally like put in the forefront. But at the same time, I mean, this is. We cannot stop paying attention to this. We need Bradley Manning to be released. We need justice for him. I mean, uh, it would be it would be amazing at the very least if somebody from the press can just interview him. You know, Um, that's not even I don't even think that's a possibility. I feel like this guy is just going to be in jail. He's going to grow old in jail. I think so, too. Just like like Afia Siddiqui. These people, yeah, yeah, all these enemy combatants, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed says a name of an MIT professor, and now she's in prison for the rest of her life. Her life is over. It's it's like the biggest case of American exceptionalism. We do not point it out. We are torturing people, U.S. citizens. We are torturing them, and we are holding them indefinitely without trial. We won't even give this guy a pillow or a blanket because we... He's he's on this weird quasi suicide watch thing where it's like they're using the suicide watch excuse to basically harass him further. They make him check in on an hourly basis from the hours of like five a.m. to eight p.m. and then if they can't see his face while he's sleeping outside of those hours, they make him check in and they wake him up. So, so if, if he's, he's like turned to the side or <laughs> sleeping on his stomach, they have to just go yeah. in there and jar him it's like awake. He's a monkey. That's great. I mean, it's like. <laughs> Go to everyone should go to bradleymanning.org if they want to get involved in just helping him out and donating to the cause. Talking about Bradley Manning and the conditions of a solitary confinement and how that's equatable to torture. And I just found uh, some research from an article that was reviewing the findings from the Journal of Crime and Delinquency from 2003. And they're just talking about research that shows traumatic psychological effects of being in solitary confinement. It can cause you to become extremely lethargic, to lose a sense of time. You incur psychiatric symptoms like depression, impulse control, psychosis, suicidal behavior, perceptual changes, and thought disturbances. And you start, I mean, think about it. You're just constantly internalizing and becoming more shut off from the outside world. So your your mind is just going to internalize everything and, be, you know, be, 
you can become extremely antisocial and could just have very traumatic lasting effects. The most important thing to to know about Bradley Manning, and it really humanized uh, his situation for me when I read, you know, the conditions of his solitary confinement and, and the books that he's requesting and all that. But he's a human being, just like everyone else. Everyone deserves a fair trial. Everyone deserves justice. And Bradley Manning's not getting that right now. So we just really need to remember that he deserves that no matter what he did. And this is a perfect time to segue now. You know, we're talking about the psychological effects of being in solitary confinement and what that does to your memory and how it distorts your reality. And we just wanted to introduce our guest, Stephen. Stephen, why don't you talk to us a little bit about how you got started in your research and what you've been working on? Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. Hi. Yeah, I... um, a couple of years ago, decided I wanted to be a researcher and I was going to go to graduate school in psychology. And I knew that I was interested in sort of the intersection of psychology and the legal system. And I had always been kind of just personally interested in, you know, issues facing criminal defendants and the death penalty and things like that. And so as I was interviewing uh, to get into grad school, I met Beth Loftus, who's a psychologist at the University of California, Irvine. It was really exciting to meet her at the time because I had like read about her in my undergraduate psychology courses. And she really kind of pioneered this subfield of memory research, looking at the effects of suggestion on, on memory. And when I got the chance to work with her, I, I took it. Uh, and, and got really interested in all the ways that, you know, memory errors and distortions and false memories can cause a lot of problems for people in, in who are being accused of crimes. So before you get into what you've been working on with her and um, recently, why don't you talk about the last 30 years? What what had she kind of pioneered in the field and what studies have, have come out in the past couple of decades about this research? Yeah, I mean, um, that's all the all the research that we do is part of this line of, as you said, thirty years of research going back to some of the first psychological studies that ever showed the effects of of leading questioning. So today it may seem kind of obvious to everybody that leading questioning can change the types of answers that you'll get, but at the time it had never been shown. So she had a study where what what time period was this? Uh, this was in probably like the mid mid to late 70s. Okay. You're starting to see, uh, she was starting to do her work on the, the misinformation effect. So for example, if I were to show you guys a video of a car crash and ask one of you, how fast do you think that car was going when it hit the other car and ask the other <laughs> one of you, you know, in a separate room, how fast was the car going when it crashed into the other car? I'm probably going to get very different estimates of speed. So just this idea that a very simple change in the strength of the words that you choose can change the types of responses that you'll get about an eyewitness's memory for maybe something that they'll need to testify about. So so this is almost about subtly manipulating the vocabulary can lead to a false eyewitness account or 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 an exaggerated or uh, well, I mean, I think that before then, people really didn't realize how just a, such a subtle change in the way you ask someone a question. I mean, really, when you ask someone something like that, you're giving them information. When you say how fast were the cars going when it crashed, you're sort of making a judgment about what that uh, the, that kind of looked like. Yeah. And so this idea that post-event information can alter the way that we remember an event 
uh, was a pretty novel idea at the time. But since then, you were asking about, you know, more recently, since then, I mean, researchers have found all sorts of ways to get people to misremember, even going as far as people remembering full childhood events that never happened, you know, in, in detail. It went kind of from just looking at the ways you can distort memories in very slight, important but subtle ways to really impressive, full-blown, false memories of childhood events. So the area covers a lot of ground in terms of the ways that memory fails. It makes me think of just polls that we see in the mainstream media. Just, I mean, everything has leading questions. You know, it's like you can't really take, you can't really trust polls and say that they're accurate <laughs> ever. Yeah, I, I mean, the way that people design surveys, that's something that as psychologists, we think a lot about all those little details. And so I think a lot of people, that's a great point when you see polls, and you're choosing from a few options. So that so that's really interesting. So it started off just by kind of calling it a question, eyewitness accounts and how your memory can be, your memory is malleable and how it can be distorted in post, post-event interrogation. And then you were talking about studies that show just full-blown false memories being implanted. Um, talk a little bit more about that research. That's really fascinating. That started in the mid-90s um, when a lot of people were recovering repressed memories of sexual abuse in their childhoods, and a lot of people were being convicted on the basis of that kind of testimony. Uh, and there were researchers that were kind of skeptical about whether or not this was possible, you know, this idea that you can have an experience and block it out of your mind and go about your life for years. You have no idea these things happen to you, and then one day it just kind of emerges this was sort of a trendy thing that was going on in the 80s and 90s. And some researchers who were skeptical of that phenomenon and especially concerned about some of these people who were being convicted on the basis of evidence like that started to try and look at, well, what could be going on then? And it didn't seem like these people were lying. In fact, they seemed really traumatized by these experiences that they really believed and remembered uh, that they had had. And so some researchers tried to look at well, what could be going on there? Maybe it's a false, a false memory. You know, maybe it's possible. Wouldn't they be like very vivid flashes. Just, just so the audience knows what like this the whole recovered memory thing is. How did, how was it done at the time? Like in the mid '90s, how were people? Give me a little example of how, you, if you wanted to see if you had any repressed memories, so called. Where would, what would you do to, to? I might, them. Right. Yeah. I might say, you know, in my experience as a therapist, you are fitting all of uh, you're fitting the profile just perfectly of someone who has had sexual abuse in their past. And a lot of times when we have these experiences, we block them out and we need to really work to dig them up from our our unconscious, basically. So they might use hypnotism. They might use guided imagination exercises. So coupled, you know, there are all of these very suggestive psychotherapeutic techniques that all kinds of research shows they're suggestive, coupled with this really strong suggestion coming from a therapist who's really in a position of authority saying, you really fit, you know, my idea of someone who has been abused and it's very likely that you can't remember it and I'm going to work with you. And the only way to sort of resolve a lot of the problems that you're having, depression, anxiety that are likely a result of the abuse, the only real way of resolving those things is to unbury the memory. I don't know. Maybe I'm just generalizing here, but a lot of people that I know that have seen psychiatrists always seem to uncover some sort of repressed like sexual memory. 
to justify like why their life is so fucked up. <laughs> does that does that permeate a certain field of psychology or psychiatry more than other aspects of it, or is it is it? You know, it's interesting. This has been a huge controversy uh, with a lot of really passionate people on both sides and a lot of warring that has gone on. And I think ultimately there is a general consensus that there's not any real credible scientific evidence to support the idea that you can repress traumatic experiences and later recover them perfectly intact. And I think there's also a consensus that people can have false memories as a result of of a lot of these suggestive psychotherapeutic techniques. That said, there are definitely still a lot of people who subscribe to some of these Freudian uh, theories of repression and coping with trauma, and it's still a very controversial, hotly debated thing. You will still be able to find professionals, experts, uh, psychiatrists, and psychologists who really believe in this in this idea. Are there any particular fields of psychology where this is more prevalent in like like cognitive behavioral therapists, people who ah. specialize in that? Like where do, what field of psychology does this kind of fit into? This is really part of the tradition of psychoanalytic, sometimes uh, referred to as like psychodynamic approach to, to uh, psychotherapy and treating sort of neuroses and mental illness. It's the kind of therapy where you will talk a lot about your childhood and the things the way that certain aspects of your childhood have formed your personality and the way you are today. Whereas cognitive behavioral therapy is another school of thought that is much more focused on teaching people skills to overcome their anxiety, teaching people different ways of thinking about thinking anxious thoughts and thinking depressive thoughts and talking about challenging cognitive distortions. This is a very different approach, though, from the more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic areas that I think a lot of this stuff exists. In. Just to inject a little opinion into this, and I and I've never had cognitive behavioral therapy myself, but it but the way you've described both of those different kinds of therapies, it seems like cognitive behavioral therapy would be a lot more y useful. I mean, it would be. It seems like it's a lot more practical of a kind of approach. Absolutely, and I'm. I mean, I should say this is not my area. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I know a little bit about these different areas. I would agree. I would agree that cognitive behavioral therapy seems much more concerned with relieving people's symptoms and their suffering than Instead of having them sort dredge of a, up their childhood or, right. or traumatic experiences that. And that's are, not to say that there's no value in um, some of the psychoanalytic ways of thinking. I mean, I think the idea that our personalities are in large part formed by our environments and the things that happen to us, there's a lot of truth to that. But uh, in certain cases, it just gets taken to an interesting extreme, I think. And, and that extreme is what you've just described, which is hypnosis recovering false memories. Right. Yeah, that would be one sort of byproduct of that, that mode of thinking, I suppose. So, Stephen, earlier you were talking about the research done in the mid-90s about implanting completely false and fabricated memories into research subjects. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? As a result of this skepticism that some psychologists felt about what might be going on in those repressed and recovered memory cases, they wondered, well, what are some ways that we might be able to plant an entirely false memory, a false childhood, autobiographical memory in a research subject? One of the first studies uh, that came out that really did that looked at this idea of a full-blown, fully detailed, really rich false childhood memory. Uh, they had the subjects come in 
And they had worked with their parents to get a list of childhood events, things that have really happened. You know, you were at your sister's birthday party, for example, and they would ask them about it and get all the all the details that the person remembered about that experience. But then they would slip in an event that they knew didn't really happen, that the experimenters knew hadn't happened, that you were lost in a mall and you were scared and you were crying and it was this you know, semi-traumatic experience. And finally you were reunited with your parents at the end of the day. Um, now the experimenters had actually confirmed with the parents beforehand that this, nothing like that had really ever happened, uh, but presented it to the subject as though the, the parents had given them the event. Right. And, you know, so a surprising, uh, number of, of the subjects kind of at first maybe were kind of like, you know, I don't really remember anything like that, but over the course of several interviews and being really encouraged to kind of like dig deep into their memories and, and pull it out, a lot of people uh, started to remember and believed that it had happened and remembered details from it. So that was the first time that ever happened. And that really kind of exploded a whole new area of research looking at what are called rich false memories. Full- and do they... And, and does that kind of relate to the same kind of techniques used in, in that, that example you were talking about earlier of the car, you know, how fast was the car going when it crashed versus how fast was the car going when it bumped into the well, car? Well, exactly. And in fact, all the research that has come since then has used all kinds of techniques that are parallels to highly suggestive psychotherapeutic techniques. So there have been research studies showing that people can be uh, led to falsely remember events from, you know bogus dream interpretation from guided imagery exercises and false feedback variety of suggestive techniques that are kind of analogs of uh, what you see happen in therapy. I remember Stephen, you sent me a clip. I think it was like two years ago and it was a clip from this movie called Waltz with Bashir. Um, It's a movie about the Israeli soldiers and kind of their experience. The, The two guys are having a discussion about how, he doesn't remember anything from his past being this Israeli soldier fighting during the Lebanese Israeli war. Um, and then they, they go into this interesting study that you've heard it. You heard about independently of this movie where they actually doctored photographs of real childhood photographs of people, but they doctored them to create events that didn't actually happen to them in their childhood. Right. That, that part of the movie is actually referring to some real research. And unfortunately the movie gets a lot of the details of what the study really was a little no, bit wrong. Okay. I mean, it gets the general gist of it right, which was that they took photographs of peop- of research subjects, uh, old childhood photographs, and took one of them and photoshopped an image of them into a hot air balloon with one of their parents and showed it to them and tried to get them to remember that experience. And a large number of them came to remember it and reported details with some questioning and interviewing which is so interesting because I feel like I would remember being in a hot air balloon. You know, and I feel like a lot of people that would be a really weird, pivotal moment in a way just because it's such a bizarre thing to do. Um, so it's just it's really fascinating that people actually, you know, dredge up a memory that's so out of the blue like that. Right. When you say, when you say a surprising number of people, like how give me like a rough percentage, like how many people in this study, for example, well, in the, well, I can tell you in the Lost in the Mall study, that was really the first one, it was about 20%. 20%, which, you know, is a pretty significant minority. I mean, that yeah. it's, a, it's enough that it seems problematic. And <laughs> I feel like if you actually are manipulating photos, the, the number would be probably higher. higher. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I actually, off the top of my head, can't remember what the exact uh, result, rates were in that in that study, but I know that false memory researchers have gotten a lot better with time at doing this. You know, yeah. as you do more studies, you sort of perfect the art of planting of planting false memories. And as technology gets better too, we were going off on this weird tangent mm-hmm. last night about how, you know they're doing Photoshop manipulation, something that's relatively new. You know, they wouldn't have been able to do it in the early nineties. And then now they're, now they're actually doing video manipulation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, But then what if, you know, computer graphics gets so hyper realistic that you could actually show someone a computer generated image of them doing something that they haven't done. What would that do to the memory? I mean, it's which, which, yeah, which calls in a question, um, the legitimacy of interrogation techniques. And Stephen, you were saying this earlier, but just that Supreme Court case that now, while subjects are being interrogated. Yeah, I mean, all all of the, the, the studies involving doctored photographs, doctored video, which you said we, we may discuss later, it all raises the question of what are the effects of using sort of fabricated evidence? And is that okay? Uh, and there was a Supreme Court ruling in the late 60s, Frazier versus Cup, I think it is, where the Supreme Court decided that it's okay to, for the police and interrogators to tell the suspect, you know, we have evidence, uh, to essentially present them with fabricated evidence, even though that may cause someone to plead guilty because they think that's their easiest way yeah. out or to falsely confess or to incriminate themselves in whatever way. That's, um, which is shocking because they could, I mean, potentially they could use like doctored images and, and video. So, of course, it's going to have more likely yeah, or even, subjects to just, you know, pl- make false pleas. Absolutely. Yeah. And like imagine if you were in jail for something that you knew you didn't do, mm-hmm. but then the cops were keeping you up for hours and telling you, we have your fingerprints at the scene. We found DNA of yours. You know, I mean, it's like they can say those things mm-hmm. legally, but I mean, just imagine the immense pressure and fear you would feel with the, with these cops telling you that they have this. I mean, if you were able to keep your cool and really not be affected by it, you know, you would probably know that they were lying if you truly weren't involved in the crime at all. But it's just, it's amazing and to you me also that's have allowed. To, you also have to perfectly recite your Miranda rights in order to actually like s- seek justice For now. That key phrase. Yeah. What was it, Stephen? That's a new, that's a very recent Supreme Court ruling that said that you essentially have to say the words, I wish to remain silent in order for the cops to stop questioning you and, you know, allow you to lawyer up or whatever it is that you want to do. So if you literally just remain silent and like are a mute when you get arrested, they can just or if you say something sort of ambiguous, like, I don't think I should be talking to you. I think maybe I should have a lawyer. This doesn't feel right. They can just keep going. Those those types of statements don't count as having invoked your Miranda rights, essentially. And that's just based on the new legal ruling. I mean, who knows if cops actually follow that. Right. And it's just troubling that someone who is less educated or who doesn't really understand the processes. I mean, well, yeah, I mean I'm educated and I wouldn't know to say that specifically. You know, I mean, it's just something that... It's it's just really scary that I mean, all yeah, these like conditions are now being put on whether or not we can get like a fair trial and yeah you think I mean under a fair justice system you know moral justice system you could just say look I don't want to talk I would like to see my lawyer I mean if that's not adequate and that's that's really ridiculous and I mean one argument to sort of consider is that it's important to think about uh, defendants' rights and what rights you have if you're being accused of a crime but even putting aside all of those ethical issues is this 
type of thing the best way to get good evidence. And if you're just focused on, okay, we have this guy in custody, we want to just open and shut the case and put him away. The real, the person who really has done something is presumably free, you know? Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're, yeah. so it's more than just, you know, a defendant's rights, which is obviously very much a concern. There's other things to consider. Everybody, if they look at this, should be concerned with, with these things, whether or not you're concerned with. And you, you were, you had a good point the other night saying that at the beginning of every trial, some somebody that has expertise in the subject should speak to the jury and say, "Memory is not necessarily proof. Um, memory is c- can be faulty." Um, but you but you've said many times that you know the justice system's opinion, kind of as a whole, the the the, the mainstream opinion is that that's common sense. Well, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the mainstream opinion, but it does happen a lot where. Um you know, the defense in a certain case will ask to have an expert come in and talk about some of the memory issues and, you know, whether it's their, the person who identified them or any witnesses that are, are giving testimony. Um, and the judge will often decide that some of these issues are just common sense. And so it really depends, I think, from state to state whether experts are typically allowed to come in and talk about these issues. But they're definitely that is something that happens. Um, people are assuming it's common sense, and it's not. I mean, because I think the majority of people they were surveyed and they were asked how accurate do you think memory is. They would assume that analogy that you that you use is that it's like playing back a videotape. You know, and that some people's memory is a little bit fuzzier than others, but that's generally what um, they think memory is. Right. And that's what you would hear uh, Beth Loftus say about what is kind of the message of all of this research. It's that memory doesn't function like a, a videotape recorder where exactly. you see something and it's stored somewhere in your brain and then it's available for you to play back when you want to go back and get some information out of it. Memory is really a reconstructive, creative type of a mental process where you, you know, every, every time you remember an experience, you're kind of putting it back together from what facts you remember about it and your sensory memories. The And it's, it's like almost like a real time process. Yeah. It's constantly evolving based on like where you are at that moment in your life. You're going to remember things differently. And very vulnerable again to suggestive outside influences. And so, yeah. And you were saying um, about our nine eleven episode, or we just did this whole special to our 9-11 episode. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, you should. But a lot of the facts backing up, you know, certain elements of the theories behind 9-11 count on eyewitness testimony. And it's really this whole conversation just kind of goes to show that you cannot count solely on eyewitness testimony for anything because it's malleable. Memory is a malleable thing. Yeah, and and Stephen... You were talking about how it's more, your memory is even more malleable during a very traumatic, huge event like 9-11. Well, this is also a really controversial area with a lot of debate. Um, you know, there are people who will argue that when you're under a lot of stress and, you know, you're experiencing something very traumatic, that you're going to remember it better than you remember other things, which in a sense is, I think, undeniably true that... For instance, all of us are always going to remember 9-11 and sort of the central, maybe the central details of that event, kind of generally what happened. What happens to your memory of details? Is it possible that you're so flooded with emotion 
and so distracted by other things that you're not encoding smaller details of the event as well as you otherwise would. And and there's a whole debate about what well what is a central detail of an event and what's a peripheral detail. Um, you know, if you're being attacked or mugged or something, is the person's face a central detail, huh. mm-hmm. or is it not? Mm-hmm. And so this is a really difficult area that and I mean traumatic memory is definitely not my the area that I'm f- focused on, but I do know that it's definitely you know, still being debated. Yeah, what are the effects of trauma on memory? Especially like an event like 9-11, not only, you know, is it so traumatic for the people that were actually there, but think about the propaganda that was set up and just lambasted upon us for months and months and months. I mean, your memory is probably, you're just so open at that point. You know, your emotions are so manipulated that you're just probably way more um, easily suggested to, to whatever the media is feeding you at the time. So that would be Absolutely. interesting psychologically to see the impacts of, you know, propaganda and the manipulation of memory from the media after like a nation trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to this idea of the kid in the mall story that these people were attempting to implant on the, the subjects, there's been other studies uh, that you've told me about. One of the ones that I, that was pretty interesting was people were asked, um, you know, how did you feel when you, saw Princess Diana's car crash, but nobody has actually seen that footage because it's never been shown. I mean, there is no footage of her car crashing. We just know that it happened. And then going back to 9-11, you've actually done a study of your own um, that I found pretty fascinating, of course, because I'm a 9-11 junkie that you did. Uh, why don't you describe it for us? Yeah, the 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 study that you described about uh, the Princess Diana car crash was one of the early ones in this little uh, what I think is an extremely clever way of of getting people to falsely remember things where you ask them about really well-known news events things that everybody has heard about and seen on the news but you sort of imply subtly imply that there's footage of a important moment in that event and there really isn't any footage but you tell the subjects there is and you ask them if they've seen it Princess Diana was one of the early ones of course there's no footage of the actual impact of her car crashing uh, but a lot of subjects are willing, you know, when you kind of subtly imply their the video exists, a lot of the subjects are willing to tell you they've seen it and describe details like how fast the car was going and what it looked like. And they've done that with a lot of different events, um, like a bombing in Bali at in a Bali nightclub. Bali nightclub bombing, yeah. Uh, a, f- a ferry that sank, I want to say somewhere in the UK, a Swedish politician where there was an assassination attempt. Lots of different events. Uh, so I wanted to do a study like this, and I, try, I was trying to think what would be an event that we use our undergraduates at UCI as our research subject. So it had to be an event that they would know about that would be a really famous event, but there definitely isn't any footage of it. And so I came upon you know United 93, which crashed in, on 9-11 in a field in rural Pennsylvania. Shanksville. And I... I kind of developed this questionnaire that just says, you know, as you may know, the, there's witness footage taken from the ground in Pennsylvania that captured the crashing of United 93 and it was publicized on the internet and the news. Have you seen it? And half my sample said yes, they had seen it. Now, that's interesting. Wow. I mean, it's a false report, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe a lot of them were sort of thinking, well, I must have seen it. You know, you're telling me it's all over the news. I guess I must have seen it. Yes. So then, you know, beyond that, we started to ask them questions about it. So if they're willing to report details in addition to making telling me they've seen it, that tells me that they're having some kind of mental experience that is like a memory. 
um, that goes beyond just saying, well, I must have seen it, but I don't remember it. Um, and we found, so half the sample said they saw the video, and then I want to say about half of them, so a quarter of the whole original sample, ha were reporting details, memories of details from the plane. Like, you know, did it crash into the ground nose down, or did it slide sort of horizontally into the ground? Um, how long was the video? What did it wow. look like? So That's people amazing. were telling me, you know, the video is about two minutes long. <laughs> I, wow. I remember the witnesses kind of talking about what was going on and uh, being very shocked. So it's amazing. It, it, I mean, in a way, I mean, it almost, it almost reminds me of the, that, you know, when you actually describe the, your, your anecdotal experience doing these studies, it reminds me in a way of the footage I've seen of psychologists coercing children into making false statements, illustrating how children can be, have memories implanted mm -hmm. in like, where's the bunny? Did mm -hmm. you see the bunny? Where's the bunny now? The bunny is running, isn't it? Can, yeah, yeah. can you like where where did the bunny go where did it run to oh it ran over there and then like they did get the bunny to... touch you did it make <laughs> you feel uncomfortable <laughs> and just to make this clear really quickly Stephen, every every research study that's been done these subjects have no idea the research that's been done on them they they have no reason to think that their memory is being manipulated at all because who would ever imagine going into a study <laughs> that someone would doctor an old photograph and put them into a hot air balloon? I mean, it's just, it's so abstract. And you even make sure at the end of the study that, the, you know, you provoke them and kind of say, do you think that we've falsified information? Or can you go over that really quick yeah. just to make sure? Yeah, no, you're right that most of them have no idea what kind of study they're in. But we are, you know, we are worried about that. So we, at the end, before we debrief them and kind of explain what the study was all about, we tell them... You know, we've used deception. Sometimes research studies require the use of deception, and this is one of them. And please give us sort of your best guess of what we were really trying to do. And if our subjects tell us, I, you know, I think this was a false memory study, we kick them out of our analyses because, you know, you're worried as a re as a experimenter about uh, sure that how, the how effects it of tainted their. Right. A lot of, I mean, there's always the concern that research participants are giving you sort of the answers that they think you want, you know? Right. So if we find that they know what, what we're up to, then we consider sort of the results without them in our data set. That's, it, it's so interesting because you can extrapolate that to so many different things in life, you know, that are based on just eyewitness accounts, even in, even the Pentagon that we don't actually have any video of the, sorry, the plane crashing into the Pentagon but it's based on all these different eyewitness accounts um, of it happening. And, and because of that, I've actually seen newspaper articles and I've seen people misspeak on numerous occasions about seeing the plane hitting the Pentagon. There was an SF Chronicle article by this woman who was kind of trying to deflate some of the 9-11 conspiracies. And she said, everybody saw the plane hit the Pentagon that day. I mean, and, and she probably believed it. It was probably... It was. It wasn't. I don't know if she was actually imagining seeing it that day, or if she had her actual memory of it. But it was like almost an assumption that she made. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in light of this idea and sort of even the experience that we all have, or I have, that when a, an event is really big, emotional, traumatic, whatever, you really feel like I'm never going to forget any of this. And then again, in a sense, you're not. We were all old enough, obviously, when 9/11 happened, that we're going to remember it for the rest of our lives. But if that's true, then how can it be true that you could, I mean, if it's such an important, um, impacting experience, it's just amazing to me that our subjects were, were it was so easy, just such a subtle, gentle suggestion. <laughs> Have you seen this video generated these 
really impressive, detailed memories in a lot of the subjects. It raises and, a lot of questions about how we process, you know, big, momentous events like this. How did this change your, just your perspective on the, the justice system? I know that you said that when you first started your research, you had a, kind of a different perspective on just defendants. Not just the work that I've done, but just being exposed to everything, all of the different research that's concerned with all the different ways that people um, can be wrongfully convicted and these miscarriages of justice. You know, you learn about problems like cross-race identifications are very problematic. It's very difficult for people to identify people of other races compared to how well they can identify people of their own race. There are all sorts of problems like that that get introduced. And I actually had an experience where I was mugged by a few guys. I went in, I called the police, I went in, and they immediately presented me with a photo lineup that had, I think, eight people on it and asked me if I saw the main person that had mugged me. And I made the identification and I felt extremely confident about it. And my identification resulted in the person being uh, charged. Yeah, I mean, it's just, how, yeah, you would never, you would look at it completely differently now because you can see how that's... Look, yeah, looking back, knowing what I know now, there was so there were so many problems with that situation. I, the, I was under a lot of stress. I was really scared. The lighting was really bad. It was very dark in a parking lot outside my apartment building. It was a cross-race identification. I got just a very short glimpse at the person's face. And there I was a few hours later making this really confident identification and telling them I was completely sure that was the person. And it's just, it's disturbing to me. Yeah, I mean, it shows you how powerful suggestion is. I mean, even in the absence of suggestion, though, mm -hmm. I think I may have made a misidentification. So mm -hmm. throw in, yeah, the, I mean, there are all sorts of things that can happen. After I made the identification, the police officer didn't say anything. And I actually asked them, is that the person you thought it was? And they said they couldn't tell me, which is the right thing mm -hmm. for them to do. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the police will say, yep, you picked our suspect. Like, we got him. And That's that type I, of feedback causes this inflation in confidence yeah, so that when the witness goes to testify, they're like presenting their uh, memory as w way more confidently than right. they really should be. That happened. I actually had that happen to me when I had to pick someone out of a photo, photo lineup once and the cop immediately kind of gave me this look like, like kind of like smiled at me and nodded his head. And I was like, is that, is that the right guy? And he's like, he's like, yeah. Oh, that's so bizarre. Then, but I never testified, luckily. I didn't have to. Yeah, I mean, that that's something that researchers look at, this post-identification feedback effect and the way it uh, changes how confident you are. Um, there are other problems where, say, sometimes they'll do a photo lineup and then an in-person lineup. So maybe in the photo lineup, you pick the suspect because he looks kind of like the person that mugged you or whatever it was. And then later, you're looking at him in a photo lineup and you really recognize him and you feel really confident that that's the person. You recognize him from the photo lineup, actually, but you've now sort of confused the memory with who the person really was. Little yeah, well. tiny su su uh, subtle suggestions like that change the way that people give testimony, and that's evidence that, you know, we're so careful with something like a fingerprint. You know, no one can be, no one can touch the area. It all gets kind of roped off, and we have to be very careful with how we pick up this fingerprint, but for some reason, we're very sloppy with the way that we deal with people's memories, and the law enforcement really resists a lot of the recommendations that psych psychologists and researchers make to improve the accuracy of eyewitness evidence.
out the SoundCloud timeline for resources that we're talking about and, and links to these studies that we're talking about during the show, also to the music. Um, we're going to link right now at this point in the SoundCloud timeline to a 60-minute special with Beth, Beth Loftus, uh, the research professor that Stephen's working with right now. She was on 60 Minutes talking about some of the false memory studies, and they go over them. They're really interesting. So, Stephen, what are you working on right now? Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, yeah, I, I had a study where I planted false memories in subjects, and I was trying to figure out what are some things that make people more vulnerable to suggestion? What are some things that make people put people in a state maybe that make makes it easier for me to suggest something to them? And I thought, why don't I ask them how long they, how much they've slept in the last couple nights? And I found that people who ended up having a false memory um, compared to the people who resisted our suggestion, they had slept less in the last few nights. I thought that was interesting. It made me start thinking about, well, what's a way that I could have an experiment where I really test this this idea that sleep deprivation makes someone more suggestible. The way I had done it with the self-reported sleeping isn't really the perfect way to answer that question scientifically. Really, ideally, you want to take a big group of people and randomize them to either sleep or not mm -hmm. sleep overnight so that you have two random samples um, in each of those conditions and then test their memories. So I happened to meet at a conference a psychologist from Michigan named Kim Fenn, who uh, we started a collaboration. Uh, she has a sleep lab there. They have some bedrooms where they you know, have subjects come in and sleep through the night, and then others that come in and are kept up all night with research assistants kind of sitting around watching movies and things. And she's always running subjects through these this situation. And it was a perfect opportunity to kind of put some of my study materials in, into what she's already doing with these subjects to look at, okay, what happens when people are sleep deprived? Is it easier to mold their memories or influence them to report certain things? Uh, so we're showing all of those subjects photographs of a guy mugging a girl and he takes her wallet and he puts it in his pants pocket, for instance. That's one part of the, the slideshow that they're being shown. And then later we give them these narratives that we say are going to describe the photos that they saw earlier. And the narratives contain little pieces of inaccurate information that are designed to kind of throw them off, to distort what they remember about the photographs. And so it'll say, for example, then the thief put the wallet in his jacket pocket. So they really saw pants pocket. Now they're being told jacket pocket. And finally, we're going to ask them, you know, where do you put the wallet? And if they say jacket pocket, then we ask, well, how do you, do you remember that from the photographs or just the narratives or both? And so a lot of people are saying, you know, that they remember jacket pocket, which is incorrect, and that they remember it from the photographs, which is incorrect. And they're, you know, making a false report. And we have found that the people who are sleep deprived are much more likely to do that. Uh, so what that tells me is that when you haven't slept, if you whether you've been kept awake or whether uh, yeah, just just these enemy combatants that were like blasting music and stuff and keeping them awake for days on end, it just calls into question that I mean, why are we doing that? It's obviously like holds no validity. <laughs> well, it certainly doesn't seem reasonable to me to assume that you're gonna get a good, you're gonna finally get someone to admit the truth to you in a state like that. Mm -hmm. I mean. 
you've completely depleted their cognitive resources to the extent that they're going to be very vulnerable to any influences, uh, any suggestive influences. So, and it would only, and, and if that's what they wanted to accomplish, then it would be a really good way to do it. And this seems really obvious, but you, I mean, this is kind of like breakthrough research because no one's really put this together. Well, I have found, I, I almost can't believe it that there has, there has been some research looking at sleep deprivation and, uh, incorrectly remembering like word lists mm-hmm. and things like that. Like if I show you a list of words and I test your memory later, uh, when you're sleep deprived, there's a study showing that you're going to do worse on that. Uh, but no studies have tried to plant false memories in sleep deprived people to see if they're especially vulnerable. It, it seems like a, an important finding to me. I hope, you know, we're, we're going to try and publish it after we finish data collection. Really breakthrough. And it's really incredible that you're working on it and, I think it can have really great um, implications. Yeah, now that you've done all these studies on memory, what's kind of your philosophy and your own personal understanding of the way that memory functions? From the limited understanding that we have so far in science, what is your, what have you taken from that? I mean, that, to answer that, I would say that I'm still figuring a lot of that out. I mean, I'm a pretty young researcher and I'm still developing exactly the directions that I want to go with my own research. But I think broadly, I mean, I'm really interested in this idea that memory is a social construction. It's molded and constructed by all these different influences and other people's memories and other people's statements and it's just interesting to me how complex of a process it is, even going beyond just neurological memory processes and thinking about the way that the media and other people shape the way that we remember things. And it is in a way a very infant science. I mean, we just are so far away from really understanding what a memory actually is. Yeah. And our collective memories too, like you were saying, you're, the societal collective memory and I mean it's just so important to go over this research and realize that our memories are not you know yeah like (laughs) they can't be played back like a tape recorder they're malleable they're moldable they're constantly evolving and constantly shaping and being adjusted to our current reality so it's just very important to just realize that it's really incredible to have you on Stephen. I'm really fascinated with your research and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you come up with and seeing the study that's coming out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed myself. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much everyone for listening. Please go to mediaroots.org for more information and consider donating to mediaroots.org to keep grassroots journalism projects going. And check out our SoundCloud timeline for resources for the links that we talked about and also the music that we play during the broadcast. Check it out, guys. Thanks so much. Peace.